Their jerseys may not hang in the rafters in Staples Center, but they hang in our hearts. You're listening to the Forgotten Lakers podcast. Thanks for doing this and calling in. I really appreciate it. No, no problem. Thank you for the opportunity, actually. No, my pleasure. Believe me. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about the podcast. It's all centered around former Los Angeles Lakers players. I've done about 34, maybe 35 episodes with former players. I'm really excited for this one because most of the guys that I've talked to played maybe in the 80s, 90s, or early 2000s. So to have a guy who was on the Lakers, you know, as recently as two seasons ago is uh, really exciting. And, uh, you know, it has a little bit of a following. I have an accompanying Instagram. And I get, you know, messages from people all the time like, oh, get Tark Black on, get Tark Black on. So hopefully uh, this really? one will make people happy. Yes, all the time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, like I said, most of the guys I talk to, you know, in the 90s or early 2000s. So to have one who played so recently is um, will be a good change of pace and uh, get some different types of questions going. Sounds like a plan to me. Um, let's have fun. All right. So to start off, how's your – I know when we were trying to arrange this, you were talking about the uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv playoffs. Uh, how did those turn out for you guys? So, you know, playing over here, we play in two separate leagues. Um, we play in the Euro League, in particular with Maccabi and the other – distinguished European teams around Europe um, that play against each other in that particular league. And then you play in a domestic league, which is according to whatever country you're in. So obviously for us in Maccabi Tel Aviv, we play in the Israeli league. Let's say he played for uh, like Tyler Ennis. He played for Fenerbahce. Um, he plays for them. He got hurt this year, but oh, so yeah, they play in the Turkish. Yeah. You know, so they play in the Turkish league and then the Greek league and so forth and so on as obviously. So for the Euro league, um, we started off the season very slow, had a coaching change, a lot of turbulence. Man, it was a lot. Um, but in the midst of that, we started off really bad. Um, but once we finally got steady ground to, to work with, to build a solid foundation of the same coach, we fought back and actually missed the playoffs by one game after being, I believe, the last team in the league to start uh. the season. We missed the playoffs by one game, which is top eight out of 16. So that means we jumped up eight spot in that amount of time um, wow. and with some of the games we lost actually were fatigue games because we were fighting so hard to get back in um but uh-huh. our winning percentage from the halfway marker was ridiculous we would have been like a top four team in the league top five team in the league if we would have started the season the way we finished it um over the last over the course of the last 15 to 20 games um, it would have been unreal for us we would have been in the playoffs and made some great noise but we missed the playoffs for that. So then we were, we were, you know, strictly focused on the domestic league. And um, for the domestic league, we were number one in Israel. Uh, we remained the number one seed throughout the playoffs. We won our first series. And now we are headed towards the semifinals and then after that, the championship. And it works exactly like the final four of the NCAA, win or go home. Okay. So now it's not a series. The first the first round is a series. Then from there, from the first round, you got the final four, which is win or go home, championship game, same thing, win or go home. Besides Tyler Ennis, are you playing against any other former teammates over there? Uh, no, Tyler's the only one from my professional career, but I, I, I know a lot of people who I've played against before in the past. Um, mm-hmm. I actually have a teammate, DeAndre Kane who I played against all four years in college. Yeah, I played against them all four years in college. She was at um, Marshall when I was at Memphis. And then the year I transferred to Kansas, funny enough, 
he transferred to Iowa State. So, oh, okay. yeah, another Big 12. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So we played each other all four years. And I know a lot of other guys from playing in high school competition, some of the top-ranked players in the country. We play against other AAU, things like that. So I know quite a few people. So getting into your, a little bit into, you know, basketball history, when did basketball go from, you know, this is fun, I like playing with my friends, to, man, I'm significantly better than everybody and I have a future in this? Uh, that journey is quite interesting, and, it, and it's very unorthodox. So I got cut every year at middle school. So I didn't play organized. I did, like, one year organized basketball when I was maybe in, like, third or second grade, like a church league. It was a police officer stayed across the street. Um, and... You know, he, he thought I was tall. He saw me and my mom going in the house one day. He's like, who is that kid? And I oh, want yeah. him on my team. So, <laughs> other, uh, up to that point, I had never really played basketball like that before. Played around in the neighborhood, in the streets, with my friends and my brothers, but never really seriously with the game. Um, but then he would take me, and even that year, I don't even remember anything, honestly. I wasn't, wasn't anything special. It was just a church league. It was another kid running around not knowing what to do and yeah from that point never played again besides playing street ball i was a really good one-on-one player street ball player but not so much when it came to coaching and referees i had never done that before so i tried out of middle school got cut every year in middle school sixth seventh and eighth grade wow um yeah right um picked up a trumpet man music was my first love picked up music in fourth grade played trumpet and played baseball my seventh and eighth grade year going into high school i i don't know i just feel like i'd give it one more try i guess to see if i could make it went and tried out uh blessing be that you know it was, it was the lord's plan you know he, he blessed me to make the team though at, at that time i wasn't really good still it was just i guess my height my potential with my height and an extra roster spot being there, I guess. Um, and so I made the team, rode the bench the whole year, never really played. And then something clicked my, at the end of my ninth grade year. I just remember balling, talking to my freshman coach, just crying on the bus. And I told him, I was like, I'm not going to ride your bench anymore. And um, Coach Lowe, Coach mm-hmm. Lowe, um, and honestly, you can check up on that story because within a matter of weeks, I was starting. And um, within wow. a week, I was the backup player. And within a matter of weeks, I was starting on that team so something just clicked in that moment for me mentally and when it clicked mentally it took no time to take off like within a week of that i had gotten in better shape i was dunking finally like things just if you ask people who were around me it it really was was a move of god because it it, it it didn't make any sense it was like this kid can't dunk can't do that and then now that he cried and now that his emotions were released and now that he has it's clicked in his mind that he wants to do it this kid is coming to the gym and dominating and dunking and, and all this stuff. Like, who is this? It doesn't make any sense. And so that's when I first started. Um, my, my sophomore year in high school, um, we won the state championship. I had a lot of older statesmen on the team who were who were far more advanced than me, my leaders. They taught me my work ethic. They taught me, they instilled in me a championship mentality. And on that team, I was pretty solid, but I was no, I was I was recognized as probably the best up and coming player, but I wasn't like the star of the team. Nowhere near it on that team. I was I had to play my role as a young cat, but my eleventh grade years when it took off and when every when the coach handed me the keys and you know, it became my team. 
in my 11th grade years when I really took off and when the major scholarships started coming in, things like that, and the national rankings and stuff like that. So, okay, you're getting recruited your junior year, like you're saying. You're from Memphis. Was University of Memphis, like, always at the forefront, or were you considering going to other schools too? I was considering going elsewhere. Um, I, like I told you, I wasn't raised to be an athlete, so I never really grew up looking at the University of Memphis like this is my dream school because I never grew up saying I would be an athlete, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it just happened, like I said, it, it was it was, it was was all planned. Um, and it was outside of my knowledge or understanding, and it just happened. So when it just happened, at that point, then you are starting to come to terms with which school do I want to go to? Am I this? And there's no previous history because my family's not from – my my dad's from Savannah, Georgia. Um, so he's a he's a Georgia and moved up to Massachusetts when he was younger. So he's not really from Memphis. And then my mom is from Memphis, but both of my my granddad is from a country a country town outside of Memphis. So nobody really grew up and, they, and nobody went to the University of Memphis in my family. So there were no affiliations to the university other than being a Memphian at that point. There are no affiliations or or um or long fanship, fan, being fans of the athletic department of the University of Memphis. So, right. and at that time, Calipari was actually, when I first started getting recruited, it was the end of my 10th grade year, Calipari was still there. That was the year he left. And Coach Fashioner, who I ended up playing for, he was the assistant coach that was the head of my recruitment for Calipari. And so, okay. you know, when Calipari was going to Kentucky, he called me and another one of my teammates, my point guard, Joe, and he was like, you know, I want you guys to still come play for me. You guys come to Kentucky. But Coach Passioner called me and he just told me, you know, I was recruiting you for Cal. Now I'm the head coach. So guess what? You know, you still – we still have that same affinity for you. And we still want you to come. And now it's even more because he was like, you know, basically I was the one recruiting. Like you said, well, Cal, you talked to him, but I was the one that was calling. So think about how much I want you. Right. And, I like, Mar- I like Marquette a lot too. Honestly, if I would never went to Memphis, I would have went to Marquette. But ended up deciding to stay home. Ended up deciding to stay home with we had like eight or nine guys in my recruiting class. We had like number one recruiting class in the country that year. Number two or number one, it was like eight guys. Seven of us were top fifty in the country or top top one hundred in the country. No, yeah, like six of us. Like six of us were like top one hundred in the country. Two two or three McDonald's All Americans. Like. The list was crazy of, of who all went to Memphis that year. Um, and so, you know, decided to stay home in that group over going to Marquette. Uh, were you a McDonald's All-American? No. I got the honorable mention certificate, which I'm pretty sure another hundred kids in the country got as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, I was um, just going to ask then, you if you played in that game or not. <laughs> man, in high hopes, but – no, nah, I didn't get my ranking up enough. And plus, being from Memphis, you don't have the same pool or, or resource within those circles to get you in. You know, you really, we did have a Memphian that wasn't a McDonald's, McDonald's All-American, the same point guard that Calipari wanted, Joe Jackson. He was uh-huh. a McDonald's All-American, but Joe was like top 10 in the country, top 10, top 15, top 20 in the country. And I was like top 50. And so uh-huh. that being said, it's top 50 guys that make it, but usually they're L.A., New York guys from cities or they have affiliations with the right people who who get them in. Oh, okay. Yeah, I fully understand the logistics of all that, but I guess that makes sense. Yeah, so I know you went to University of Memphis and just doing a little bit of research about this. And, you know, even as a, a, like a hardcore Laker fan, I didn't realize – 
that uh, you graduated early from Memphis before moving on to Kansas. So, and, you know, just here, you know, the workload with those classes, being a big time college player at a huge school like that, how do you like navigate the idea of graduating early? Because most of these guys are, if they're trying to get to the NBA are not focused on graduating, but you're the exact opposite. You want to get to the NBA and you still graduate early. So how did you, you know, navigate that? Well, that conversation first started when I, um, like my 11th grade year, when it became realistic that Tariq could make it to the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, you know, Nike, Nike has a big, has a big factory. It's, it's other main place is Memphis. There's a Nike factory in Memphis. If you, if you order something from Nike, if you check your boxes, they're always shipped out of Memphis. So Memphis is like Nike's other hub besides Oregon. And mm-hmm. So with that being said, there was a church member of mine who I grew up with who, um, you know, me and my family always looked up to everybody. All the young kids looked up to him in the church. A guy named Willie Gregory who worked at Nike. And mm-hmm. once that, once those things start becoming a reality of Tar can be a professional athlete, an NBA player, and he actually could leave school early, he he advised me, he's like, Tar, set up your college schedule so that you can graduate in three years. Because he's like, if you leave after one, if you're one and done, you only have two years left. He said, if you're two and done, you only have one year left. And if you end up doing three and still leave early, then you you left with your degree. So he was like, why not? And I come from an academic household. You know, my grandmother was a teacher. Uh, my mom was a teacher for a portion. My older brother now is a teacher. My mm-hmm. mom is a college graduate. My Both my grandparents on my mom's side were college graduates. My dad played for um, college basketball. So I come from an academic background. You know, he, regardless of regardless of anyone's economics situations they're raised in, regardless, I come from an academic background. You know, of people who are heavily into their academia. So therefore, I've always been a studious person. I've always been a person who took care of my work, was good in class, things of that nature. You know, mm-hmm. so. It was pretty simple. It was pretty simple for me, and since I was at home as well, being that I went to the University of Memphis, I took summer courses because I didn't have to go. Like if I would have went to Marquette and traveled at home and then go back to school, I was already. Oh. So I just took summer courses as well. Wow, that's so impressive. Uh, I mean, what was I'm just trying to think? Like, so how was your? I know your summer schedule is different than the rest of your teammates, but how was was your school year just more demanding as well than everybody else on your team? Oh, not necessarily, because actually we had a lot of guys graduating three years in that class. You know, I, and I don't know if if my, if my the, the way I went about it was the blueprint, and me asking our academic advisors could I do that was the blueprint for that class. But um, you know, you have I don't know, you know, Will Barton that plays for the Denver Nuggets. Yes, yeah. So that that was my college teammate. Me and Will came in. He was a part of our recruiting class, too. His younger brother came to Memphis with us. He graduated in three years and played for Tennessee his fourth year. Um, the point guard I was talking about, Joe Jackson, he graduated in the summer semester after our third year. Um, we had another guy, I think Chris Crawford. I think Chris Crawford graduated um, the same time as Joe did the summer before their senior year. So we had a bunch of – we had like three, four guys graduate within three years or three years in a semester of summer school all of us were graduating before that fourth year marker basically all of us so it happened a lot on our on our team but we were just studious people we took study hall serious we had a lot of study hall to make sure we got things done and plus everybody i just named besides antonio barton were all memphis we're all memphis kids we're our recruiting class had like five memphis kids in it so we mm-hmm. all just stayed home and finished school 
So you graduate in three years, then you, before you move on to Kansas, were you considering the NBA at that time, or what? Uh, what led to your decision to play one more year at Kansas? Yeah, I've always considered. I was always, you know, go to the NBA. You know, even though I was serious about my schooling. My dream at that point was going to the NBA and being a professional athlete at whatever cost, you know, whether it's leaving school early and not graduating, no matter what, um, pursuing my aspiration of being an NBA player. So um, during that summer, I knew it was time for me to leave Memphis. I had accomplished everything that I could accomplish. I graduated, and I, and I knew that to further my basketball, I had to go somewhere else. So I made a decision to leave, and and I looked at the NBA. I was getting NBA phone calls. I was on a mock draft. My my after starting my sophomore year, I was preseason conference player of the year, Wooden Watch, you know, mock draft, first round pick, all this type stuff. And it didn't go well. It didn't go as planned. It didn't go well. So I knew that I had NBA attention. Plus. People would call like my our trainers would say, you know, someone this team called us say about you and your work ethic. So they would keep me informed, and I knew it was an option. But I also knew that after how my 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 junior year had gone, it wouldn't have been the best decision for me to place myself in the draft at that time. And then when I decided to leave and, and transfer, when when team when when other schools found out that Otark is leaving the University of Memphis, the phone calls that I got, in honesty with you being recruited by Duke and Kansas and all these. Um, and I was very surprised that it said, well, you know, if I have these opportunities, this will be the best thing for me to go spend a year at one of these places, grow, grow in a game, and also play for one of these coaches because it, it makes more sense at this moment than going to the NBA, to the NBA and, and it's all up in the air of whether or not you even make it, get drafted or anything, whether you even have a career at this point. And then you end up getting your master's at Kansas. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, what'd you get your master's in? African American studies. You know, being being from the hometown of uh, being from Memphis, Tennessee, we're predominantly African American. So, and growing up, I always learned about it and knowing what I wanted to do with the foundational work that had been in the work since I was younger. Me and my mom had been talking about it for, and my dad, as I've always talked about that and being philanthropic. If I ever got the platform, I wanted to delve more into that and more into the understanding of those in my hometown who I had the heart to help and understand it more from an academic place and in a well-studied place than generalities that, that, that don't, that are just observations and not the true study, you know? Right. So I know you had a short stint with the Rockets before we get into your time with the Lakers. Uh, so I guess that was the, let me think, the 14-15 year when you got brought onto the Lakers, I think in January. Um, yeah. So yeah. So, what were your initial impressions when you joined the Lakers that season? Uh, man, it's funny because the day that so the day that I landed, right? So I got waived by the Rockets. It takes forty eight hours for a team to pick you up off waivers. I'm I'm backing because I got, I got waived in Memphis, by the way, before we played the Grizzlies. So I went oh, okay. to my mom's house. I hung out there. We got flights back to Houston. Me and my mom went to Houston. We packed up my apartment. I'm talking to my agent. I'm wondering, and you know, then at this point towards the end of the, the 48 hours, my agent's telling me, you know, Target's coming down between, you know, the Rockets, or not the Rockets, um, the Lakers and Charlotte. They're the two teams that are probably going to pick up off wa- waivers and they have the worst record, so they would get you. And so yeah. like, where do you want to go? Do you have any decisions? Da, da, da. And I'm not sure what to say. So the Lakers pick me up. I get on a flight, head out to L.A. The moment I land, they're headed on a road trip, or we, obviously, are headed on a road trip to Denver. 
So I land, I go straight to the front airport, straight to the hospital, do my physical and everything, straight to the gym. Team just got done practicing. So I, I meet I meet a couple guys. I think Wayne Ellington was in there shooting at the time. Ronnie Price was in there. Um and coach. So I go in there, I meet meet a couple people. Mitch was in there, go and meet a couple people, and I'm straight to the plane, right? To the plane, on the plane. We fly to Denver or whatever. I'm sitting there still. I'm, I'm sitting in the front seat with Nick. I'm sitting beside Nick, and I don't know anybody. Um, at this time, now that I play more years, if I get traded somewhere, I would know people because of how much I play professionally. But at that time, I, I don't know anybody. So I'm right. And if I'm with Nick, just weird and awkward. I don't know. I have no clue who to talk to, what to say, anything. <laughs> so we land, <laughs> we land in Denver, and I'm just like, man, I'm on the Lakers now. Like, I'm, I'm Lakers. Yeah, I've heard um, a few stories by guys who maybe played with Kobe earlier in his career, but nothing like that helicopter one. So thanks for sharing that. Um, it was so that was for me. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, just seeing something like that and Kobe and Byron Scott and everybody. So yeah, that was your first year in LA. Then your second one, your this will be your first full year, is uh, Kobe's last year. Um, so his final season, season number twenty. Uh, you were there for the whole ride. And, I, you know, I even though it was, uh, you guys won 17 games that year, I watched probably, I'm going to say like 70-something of those 82 games uh, just whenever I yep. had a chance to catch them on League Pass. And when you're going through that, like a season with a lot of losses, that's more or less just, at least from my perspective, focused on like a final hurrah for Kobe. Like, what is that frustrating for you as a guy? Like, um trying to, you know, learn the ropes with the Lakers still and get more acclimated to the NBA. And you feel like it's just this whole big hoopla instead of, you know, maybe like a traditional year. 
Yeah, and it's frustrating. It was frustrating for me because I come from from winning. Like I like I said, I, I hadn't played the game until high school. My first year really playing basketball, right? Like I told you, I rode the bench my ninth grade year. So my first real yeah. year of like playing was tenth grade. Well, guess what? In tenth grade, I won a state championship. So my first mm-hmm. year of playing, I won a state championship. My second year of playing, we didn't win it, but we competed at a high level. My third year of playing, right, which is my senior year in high school, we were a top five team in the country at one point because we hadn't lost a game the whole season. And Memphis mm-hmm. was the toughest city to for basketball our year because we had like like five or six teams in the top one hundred um, of high school teams in the country at that time. Wow. So I played at a very high level. And my team was the best team in the city before, like, obviously we, we didn't win state, right? So some team ended up turning out to be the best in the end. But regular season, like, so this is my this is my walk. And then at Memphis, right, you go to Memphis, you're a top two, top one recruiting class. You win the conference tournament. You almost beat Arizona in the, in the, in the tournament your freshman year. You lose by two. They go to beat Duke by 25 that game. And, and, and Derek Williams goes on to be a lottery pick. And y'all almost put them out of the tournament. Right. right. So this is this is how my career has been playing out since I actually have picked up a basketball. Like I told you, it happened overnight. It did not. It wasn't a, a story of a of longevity. Like it was literally overnight. Tark, uh, who was Tark Black? Oh, he's hit. Oh, dang! And now this is Tark's story. Just winning, 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 winning. So now that I get to Los Angeles and with Houston, right? We're winning. Yeah. We're the top three team in the NBA. So now I get to Los Angeles, right? And it's tough, right? It's a brand new look. And then the pressure and the scrutiny of putting on a Laker jersey doing that too, right? You get bashed. You know, to this day, I still see Instagram memes of like, do you remember this team? Or were you a fan when we had this team? And it's the team that I played for. And it's like, oh, yes. You know what I mean? Like, like, dang, like, man, I was a part of that. And I really want to be a part of the winning, but they didn't keep me long enough to do that. But it's, But it's like, man. So it's really, it was really tough for me, but I, I, Carlos Boozer really helped me out a lot, you know, and, and my, my rookie year playing with him and he, he talked to me about my frustrations and how emotional I was towards the game and, and, but I was emotionally immature towards the game, mm. you know? So, so he, he talked to me a lot about my emotional maturity towards the game of basketball and that helped me out a lot to make it through. Um, make it through the seasons as they the, that season, and also towards how I work towards the game. If this is the situation that we're not winning, who am I? How am I being the best that I can be? And am I pushing us forward to winning, or am I accepting the situation? And I believe that anybody who watches the games and any Laker fan around would say that, like Tark Black, regardless of winning 17 games, that dude right there went out to win every one of them. No, I agree, and I think that's why, uh, like I said, people are requesting you for this podcast. And um, you know, as, as somebody who watched that game, watched that season very closely, you were very quickly became a fan favorite during your time in LA, just with a lot of, you know, hustle plays, energy, uh, energy type plays, a lot of dunks in traffic or highlight reel blocking shots, and uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. Good. I just wanted to go play the game and just being myself. And, and I, you know, you have a certain character built in you. And one thing Google helped me with too was once you have a certain character built in you, like who you are, keep that. Because teams that like, think about this teams that sign guys and trade guys around, they're trading you and signing you around because of what you're built. Like, of course, you can grow and expand. You always want to grow. You never, you never stop working on and expanding and growing in your ability 
but also you can never forget who you are. You know, right. you never drop below who you are. And so for me, a circumstance didn't dictate how I came out to perform every night, how serious I took the game, and regardless, the potential or probability of going to get a win. You know what I mean? Because that's the difference between 16 wins and 17 wins. 17 wins, you look at teams like Brooklyn and Philadelphia that go from the worst team in the NBA in one season to competing for, you know, playoffs and, and honestly for Philly's NBA finals in one or two years. Right. Look how drastic that is. You know, so I always want to, to play that way, perform that way, and that's just my character just in myself. Like, I'm not going to lace up and put go on, step on the floor and not give you what I got, you know? Um, so one more question about uh, your last season. I, I wanted to touch on Kobe's last game uh, that you played in, obviously. And so I just want to see if you would answer this question. Like in 50 years from now, if one of your grandkids says, oh, dad, tell me, or grandpa, tell me about uh, Kobe's last game. How would you answer it? At this point right now in my career, the most invigorating game I've ever been a part of. And I pray that it isn't the pinnacle game. You know, right. I pray there's a lot more basketball for Tariq Black to play, but mm-hmm. I can only answer you from where I am today. And that game was so electrifying and exciting. Mm-hmm. And I, I even watch the highlights of it now. Like sometimes every once in a while, if I need to pick me up or some of that nature, I'll watch. I'll watch the highlights or I'll watch the game right on YouTube. And even yeah. now, my heart starts jumping and and my eyes get watery sometimes. And honestly, I get watery sometimes because it's just such an amazing game of basketball you know what i mean like regardless of whether we lose or win we playing the jazz we weren't playing for the playoffs when you take out all those different things mm-hmm. you know all the different you know parts of, of of what was going on and you just focus on just the basketball being played the moment that it that is kobe's last game yeah it is amazing it is mind-blowing and amazing and a matter of fact it's, it's hilarious you bring that up because my teammate yesterday made fun of me because he watched it yesterday. And, oh, yeah. Or the day before yesterday. We came in the locker room yesterday. He was like, yeah, you know, I watched it. I watched it the other day. He was making fun of me because of how I was talking to Kobe during that game. I was talking to Kobe during that game when he started scoring and, and, and when he started going, and I just kept yelling. I was like, oh, I was like, OG, because we all, all those young dudes called him OG. Oh, so yeah. Like, OG, that's what are you doing? Yeah, I can. I've seen the clips of you when he walks off the court during his flurry in the fourth quarter. You saying like, "That's the way to do it, OG. That's the way to do it." Exactly. And then my team, DeAndre was in the locker room, like mimicking me and making fun of me for that being my reaction. But in that moment, it's like, like I told you, it's like we all called him OG. He's always OG. And you know, just that moment, seeing him go down that way, seeing him click back into, you know, who he is. Honestly, it's not just clicking back into it, but establishing who he is, not being held back by his age at that time, his body at that time, and just leaving it all out there and seeing how his mind just clicked to, this is my last game, cool. Tired is not going to stop me. Things not going to stop me, nor is my defender, nor is nothing's going to stop me from doing what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's just that mentality, that mentality, that perspective, and watching it play out is, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that was definitely uh, – yeah, I mean, I watched it on TV from Dallas, where I'm from. But, uh, yeah, that's one I'll remember for a long time. So, yeah, we can wrap up with talking about the uh, Tark Black Foundation. Uh, what are your plans for that for this summer and for the, you know, the near future? Yeah, so, like I, as I told you, you know, my, my mother was – ran the, the marketing department. She's director of 
public relations for St. Jude for mm -hmm. 10 plus years. Uh, my dad was always a neighborhood dad to me and all my friends. He always had a, a huge heart, and I inherited that from him. And so from that, from me being younger and growing up in that type of environment with those two parents, I naturally became a philanthropic person, a person who cared about others, and a, a person who actually found his purpose beyond basketball, beyond academics, beyond money, beyond all this different stuff, found purpose in who I am to others and the blessing that I can be in any locker room I enter, in the atmosphere I enter, or in any neighborhood, and in the neighborhood that I grew up in, and also in neighborhoods that are like the one I grew up in and how I can impact them. And so once I got the platform, me and my mother talking, me and my dad talking, we decided that we wanted to move forward with starting the foundation. My mother's the president. My dad works with us often on, on the programs and the things that we do. Mm -hmm. This summer, um, we added some things. This summer, we have a summer internship for young men who are around – the age 17 to, or like 15 to 18 around that age group and mm -hmm. it's called plan b it's called plan b it's for young men who who aspire to play sports but if that doesn't work if that doesn't work what do you do and so the it's a six-week program that runs obviously six weeks in memphis and it's for young men to learn about the different diet what sports can get you involved with right you have sports medicine you have what you're doing right now broadcasting and uh, so we partnered up with a lot of different people and individuals to come run sessions and teach the different ways that you can be employed through sports without actually playing the sport um, wow. but with that also packaging it with the life skills that these young men need to be successful moving forward going to college and things of that nature. Our other program is called Summer Glam. It's, it's Girls Life Academy Memphis. That's where you get glam from. It's an acronym. Right. And it's, for, it's, it's essentially the same thing for young ladies, but instead of it being about sports, it's about life in general. We take young ladies and we teach them about growing up to be women at this point in time as they're transitioning this pivotal moment of how they take their character and life skills with them to do so and to be properly equipped for what life has to show. So with them, we take them to apartment complexes and show them how to purchase apartments, what they should look for, car dealerships. What do you, how do you purchase a car was the, was the perfect way to do it. Um, my wife is an esthetician, so she teaches them about skincare and taking care of yourself. My mother-in-law is a life coach, so she comes down and teaches about psychologically as women grow and different. And so it's six weeks, so it's a bunch of programs instilling in them those life skills and character and building their own morale and ethic around themselves. And also accompanying that with the belief system that we have with the foundation as um, believers in God and Christ of being sound, you know, being sound and being set up for success and moving forward. Um, the third program we have is called Transformation 50. And this is my personal baby that I, that I am probably the most involved with is the one that we take 50 young men and we go to random neighborhoods, community centers in Memphis um, that are in inner city poverty neighborhoods. And mm -hmm. we work at that gym with that community with 50 young men. And we teach we it's a basketball camp, but half of the day is spending classrooms doing basically what we do for the older kids with the younger ones. But instead we do things like police etiquette. We, tell you, we teach them how to change tires and work on cars. We teach them table etiquette and manners oh. and introduction and socializing. Um, we work with them on um, relationships, right, and how to treat each other, how to treat others. And so we're working with these young men in these neighborhoods also, once again, instilling in them and packaging in them the moral confidence, the ethics, 
that they would need to move forward. And also before every day, um, in my previous years, I prayed with the, with the group, and I've also done Bible studies so they can understand who God is and, and, and what faith means and walking it out. And so those are the programs that we have right now. And then as of recently, we started talking about Los Angeles and the things that, because I still live in Los Angeles. My wife is from there. Yeah, my wife is from Los Angeles. So every summer I live in Los Angeles. And so working in the community that blessed me so much, being a Laker, and growing up in that community, being that I became a man base, I found my wife, I got I got married, I had my son, you know, I, I paid my first bills in Los Angeles, right? You know, so Los Angeles right. essentially made me a man. I became a man in that community, and it means so much to me, and I'm honored that I got that opportunity. And so giving back to that community, and, and for, so for that, we're actually pivoting the foundation, and we're focusing a lot on building bridges amongst socioeconomic and ethnic groups. So that different communications, a safe space for people from different walks to come together and and for their own safety, be able to have conversations and to learn more. Because I think the world needs that so much. We need to be able to learn more and to socialize more with others who are not like us. Because instead of socializing with people, you see so many prejudices being built. And that's not good. You see so many barriers and walls being built instead of bridges. And so in Los Angeles, we're working on two programs in particular right now that aren't instituted yet, but in, in the upcoming years, they will be. Um, one on entrepreneurship, that we want to run something kind of like Shark Tank for oh, different wow. communities to come together, establish a business plan, provide, um, provide, and basically let them help them build the business model and teach them what a business model looks like, help them build it. And then in the end, they can present it to actual investors. Um, so that they can one day potentially, so that one day they can, so for one, so one, no, they, they understand the business model, they understand entrepreneurship, and then who knows if they, if the business idea is great, and who knows how it comes out in front of these, in front of the, the VCs, who knows what may happen. You may have a young man, a young, a young lady, formerly an actual business at their age. And then another one is I did an art show in Los Angeles two summers ago called Eye for Art in partnership with a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And we want to build that out more as a fundraiser slash experience for the young men and women that we ended up working with so that they can experience another dynamic because who are how often in different communities. And that's, well, simplify things. So art, I think, is a universal language. Right. I think everybody speaks art. So certain things, there's music. Art are certain things that no matter where you come from, no matter what your what your background is, everybody can appreciate art. And so that's a room and a safe space once again for people to come together and to build these bridges and also to work with these young men because they learn how to socialize, they learn how to present themselves and come out. And, and so we're working and packaging that and we're delving deeper into what that means, what it's going to be. And these are things that we want to institute within the next couple of years. Wow, that's just, I'm just blown away by how impressive all that is and that you're doing this, you know, strictly to get back to whether it's a community in Memphis or like you said, now in Los Angeles. So, and that's why I'm here, you know, that's my purpose and honesty with you. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tark. And uh, speaking on behalf of Lakers Nation, thank you for your two and a half years with the Lakers. There was uh, you know, definitely some highlight real plays that are still fun to watch on YouTube from your time there. And uh, best of luck with this upcoming season, whether you're in Israel, uh, back in the NBA, or elsewhere. Uh, Laker fans will be watching you. I appreciate that. And I have a lot of love for Lakers fans. Lakers Nation. I appreciate you all for all the fond memories that 
I have in return. Cool. Thanks again. Uh, I'll send you a link to this episode when it's posted. I appreciate it. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.